so tonight <clears throat> we're on, I think, the 10th article, which is justification. And uh, this, is a, um, this is a big one. Um, we, we don't have actually much written in our statement of faith, but I think this is a very, very important topic. And in fact, if you think back to the Reformation of 1517, um, this was at the center of the Reformation. Um, th this was the topic that, uh, that spurred Martin Luther to, uh, to initially nail the 95 Theses on the Castle of Wittenberg and, uh, and where the Protestants um, ended up emerging and, and separating itself from the Church of Rome. Um, so th this is indeed a very important um, doctrine. And I would say that for every um, sect, for every religion that has gone wrong, that, that has gone off the path of orthodoxy, um, it typically starts with a wrong view of justification. Um, so this is at the very heart of it. You know, we often hear phrases like justification by faith, which refer to our salvation. But what specifically does justification itself mean? Because in the English language, when we use the word justification, what do we normally, how do we normally use it when we say words like justification? How do we normally use it? Oh, we have something to back us up to say we're right. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's basically something that, that helps provide us with support. It's, it's, some, it's maybe a, an excuse for something that we did wrong. You know, what's your justification for doing this? It's, it's essentially an explanation of some sort. But when the Bible talks about justification, that's not what it's talking about at all. Um, justification, actually, um, in the Greek, it comes um, from the same word that's used for righteousness, um, so to justify is actually, it's, it's very much tied to righteousness. It's the same, same Greek word. One is a noun, one, one is a, a verb. Um, so we're going to take a look at um, some statements, um, some verses tonight. Let, let me go ahead and read the, um, the WABC statement of faith first. And then we'll take a look at some verses um, that, that help kind of lay the foundation to this topic. And, and this is, um, in many ways, a very technical topic, so it is going to get into the details a little bit, but I think this is going to be very important to understand um, what it means and what it doesn't mean. So our statement reads, We believe that the great gospel blessing which Christ secures to those who believe in him is justification. Justification includes the pardon of sin and the gift of eternal life on principles of imputed righteousness, and it is bestowed not in consideration of any works of righteousness which we have done his righteousness is imputed to us solely through faith in the redeemer's blood now that statement i have no qualms about that statement i, I would not disagree with that statement i, I think it just um, needs to be more detailed um, I, I would probably add a whole lot more detail to that but let's take a look at um, some verses um, if you will to, to kind of get an understanding get a feel for what we mean by justification now, what I'm going to say to you here is that justification, let me give you my summarized uh, definition. Justification is God's legal declaration of righteousness. Okay, it is his legal declaration of righteousness upon us. And he gives us that legal declaration of righteousness on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, the righteousness is received not on the basis of that declaration, but on the basis of the W double imputation of Christ. Uh, when I say double imputation, it means that our sins are transferred to Christ when he's on the cross, and then his righteousness gets transferred to us. Um, so we receive the righteousness of God. He receives our sins. That's what we call double imputation. That's what actually um, allows us to stand righteous before God. Um, but justification by itself is simply the legal declaration. Um, so I'll, I'll just 
leave it at that. Justification is God's legal declaration of righteousness uh, for the sinner on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this um, was a sharp contrast from the Roman Catholic view. Um, let me read for you this quote. The traditional Roman Catholic understanding of justification is very different from this. The Roman Catholic Church understands justification as something that changes us internally and makes us more holy within. So in other words, when you're justified by God, he actually changes something internally. Um, now, we would agree that there is a change in our heart, but I would refer to that as regeneration. So, so this is where we want to be able to get the terminology correct in terms of what, what's being referred to. But here, the Roman Catholic Church refers to justification as something that changes internally, makes us more holy within. In distinction from the Roman Catholic teaching that we are justified by God's grace plus some merit of our own. So, so justification is a change that happens inside, but it also happens on the, base of a, on the base of not just grace, but also our works. So the grace of God, in addition to some of our good works, leads to our justification, which is our internal changing of being made more holy. If that sounds a little confusing, it is. Um, it's difficult to, to, to really make sense of that. Um, in terms of how the Roman Catholic Church teaches it. But let's take a look at a few verses just to get a sense of what we mean by justification. Uh, justification. If you take a look at Proverbs, take a look at Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. And we see in the book of Proverbs... Uh, sorry, 17, verse 15, 17, verse 15, Proverbs 17, um, verse 15. We see here a contrast between justification and condemnation. Um, someone go ahead, and when you get there, go ahead and read for us Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who con condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. So what we have here in verse 15, we have, we have a description of injustice, right? Um, we, have the, we have the wicked being justified and we have the righteous being condemned. And, and notice the contrast here. We have a contrast between the wicked and the righteous, and we have a contrast between justifying and condemning. Now, let me ask you this. What does it mean to condemn? Rule guilty. To rule guilty. Okay. Does it mean that it makes the person guilty? In, in, in what kind of setting do we normally see condemnation happen? In a courtroom. Right. It's a judge. It's a judge, and the judge is deciding on the facts of the case, and it's not the condemnation that makes that person guilty, is it? That, that person was already guilty based upon what he or she did. It's really just the declaration that, indeed, you are guilty. So it's condemnation. So we see here that there is a contrast between justifying and condemning. So if condemning is to rule someone guilty, then justifying means to do what? Rule someone innocent. That's the opposite. So here in Proverbs 17, 15, it's basically saying he who rules the wicked to be innocent and yet rules the righteous to be guilty, um, both are alike are an abomination to the Lord. Um, so that's the, the idea there. Go back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Because I told you that justification um, shares the same word as righteousness. That's true in both the Greek and the Hebrew. Um, Genesis 15, verse 6. Genesis 15, verse 6. In Genesis chapter 15, this is Abraham. 
Um, Abraham is um, receiving another confirmation of the um, Abrahamic covenant given by God to him. And Genesis 15, we take a look at this, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And then in verse verses 2 and 3, actually verses 2 to 4, um, Abram is like, okay, you're making these promises, but I have no children, right? I mean, how is this going to happen? I have no children, and the, the only child is, is it really belongs to the servant of the house. So he's thinking that the promise is for the servant. And then in uh, verse 5, um, the Lord took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Um, so in verse 4, he said, no, this, your descendant will be an actual heir of yours. And then verse 5, he gives that promise. And then verse 6, we have something very important. Then he believed in the Lord, and he, being the Lord, reckoned it to him as what? Righteousness. righteousness. So remember what I said, justification shares the same root as righteousness. So here, the Lord is actually declaring Abraham to be righteous. But it's not based upon any works of Abraham, is it? Abraham didn't do anything to deserve being called righteous. What, what was it that God caused? What, what was it that caused God to um, count him as righteous? What well, he believed, he believed. So what we see here in Genesis fifteen six is a very early um, form of justification by faith. Abraham was justified; he was counted righteous before God on the basis of his faith in God. Um, so it's it's we see the same idea there. Now, the, the biggest problem for all of us before God is indeed um, who can stand righteous before God. Um, because really, uh, if Jesus Christ had not come, if he had not died on the cross, who, what, which one of us could stand innocent before God? No. Yeah, none of us. None of us. In fact, uh, go to the New Testament now. Look at the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus says quite a few things uh, in this sermon, but we'll take a look at a couple of statements uh, within this sermon. So this is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus is addressing um, a Jewish audience here. All right, so this is not a mixed group. He's, he's addressing a Jewish audience. And basically the Jews believe that because we are children of Abraham, because we are physical descendants of Abraham, we will be um, citizens of the kingdom of God. I mean, that was, to them, that was automatic. And really when you look at how the um, Sermon on the Mount starts, um, Jesus kind of puts that, you know, he, he basically says that's not the case. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Look at verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is a section of the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes. Right? These are the attitudes of a kingdom saint. And basically what Jesus Christ is saying is that it's not your ethnicity that's going to get you into heaven. It's not your ethnicity that earns you entry into the kingdom of God. You know, it's these kinds of attitudes. Um, so Jesus was not making this specifically for the Israelites, but basically for those who had these kinds of attributes, these kinds of attitudes. But then when you go down to verse 20, and recognize at this time, uh, the Jewish leaders um, are, consist of this, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
But the ones who were really the legalists, I mean, the ones who stuck as closely to the letter of the law as possible were the Pharisees. I mean, they were seen, they, they were seen as being just absolutely disciplined and, and as righteous as people could possibly be. You know, they stuck to every letter of the law as much as they could. In some cases, they stuck to traditions, but they were seen as just being this really holy, righteous group. But when you go down to verse 20, Matthew 5, 20, Jesus says this, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that would have been a stunning statement for those who were there, because of all people that would have earned their way to be a part of the kingdom of God, it certainly would have been the Pharisees. They were the most fastidious. They were the most disciplined. They were the most knowledgeable. They, they were the ones that, they, they were the keepers of the law. They were the ones that knew the scriptures. You know, they were the ones that, that prayed. They were the ones that, that enforced all the, uh, all the obedience of, of the people of Israel that, that would listen to them. So, so these, were, um, these were seen as the most righteous. And then Jesus says there that your righteousness needs to go even higher than that. And he ends up concluding at the end of chapter 5. Go down to verse 48. Verse 48 says, Therefore you are to be what? Perfect. perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. So really I believe what this is saying is that if you really want to justify yourself before God, um, Jesus here is saying, look, you need to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, how righteous? Well, verse 48, you are to be perfect. You are to be perfect. Now, that's obviously an impossibly high standard, is it not? And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. You can't justify yourself by your own works. You can't justify yourself by your own righteousness. You'll never get there. Because the standard that God expects is perfection. It is perfection. That is perfect righteousness. Um, there in a nutshell. But you see here, just in those two verses, you see the big issue that we have before God. How can we be counted as righteous before God? Now let's uh, turn to the book of Luke. Go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. So from Matthew, you got Mark and then Luke. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. This is the Pharisee and the publican, or the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we're going to read from verses 9 through 14. And this is going to provide a contrast between the Pharisee, who was very self-righteous, and the tax collector here, whom we will see is not. Um, and notice how um, Jesus really introduces this. Um, Luke, as he writes in verse 9, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, all right? So the whole point that Jesus tells this story is because he's addressing those who think that they are righteous and they viewed others with contempt. And Jesus said this in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Interesting, he's praying to himself. He's not praying to God. He's praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. All right, but verse 13, we see a very different attitude in the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, so he, he doesn't even feel he's worthy enough to get close to, uh, to, to where, uh, where God would be. 
standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So now what you have is the tax collector with a very, really an opposite attitude from the Pharisee. The, the tax collector is not even willing to stand close. He's not even willing to look his, um, you know, point his eyes up into heaven. All of that is to show that he feels he is completely unworthy to be in the presence of God. He is unworthy to even look, at, uh, look in the direction of God. And what he recognizes about himself is that he needs God's mercy as he is a sinner. And then verse 14, Jesus says this, I tell you, this man, talking about the tax collector, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, that's another proof that being justified doesn't mean that someone is suddenly changed to being righteous. It's a declaration. And Jesus is saying that man who humbled himself, recognized he was a sinner, recognized his need for mercy, he's the one that goes, to, goes home being justified because he's the one that recognizes his need for a savior. He's the one that would believe in Jesus Christ. He's the one that would believe in, the, in, in Jesus' um, penalty, the death that he paid on the cross, the, the penalty that, that he paid on our behalf. So we see here justification, just more proof that justification is a declaration. It's not something that changes us inside. It's really just a declaration that someone is, um, is innocent um, and really more technically uh, righteous um, before God. Now, really, the book that... Um, that really gets into justification by faith is which book? You guys know? Which book gets to the heart of justification? Romans. Yeah, it'd be Romans. Yeah. If you go through the book of Romans, um, I don't think that there's any other book in the New Testament that mentions the righteousness of God more than Romans. Um, righteousness and, and justification. Um, let's take a look at, go, go and turn there, turn to Romans, and let's take a look at chapter 1. And remember, like I said, the, the word for righteousness is really the same word as justify. It's just one is a verb and one of them, one is a noun. So when you see righteousness, that's very much tied to the idea of justification. Um, and in chapter 1, verse 16, verses 16 and 17, this is really Paul's thesis for the entire book of Romans. This is his summary for the entire book of Romans. This is what kicks it off. This is, this is everything for him. Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But look at verse 17. For in it, in what? In, in the gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. So you already see in those two verses that Paul is not only talking about the gospel, but he's also connecting it to justification by faith. Righteousness comes through the gospel on the basis of faith. That's essentially what Paul is saying. And we could do a study of um, chapters 1, 2, and 3 where he really lays out um, man's inability to please God, man's inability to stand righteous before God. Um, we obviously don't have time to do that, but it, it certainly um, is a worthwhile study. Turn to chapter 3, though. Chapter 3, and take a look at verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So in other words, through the law, through the law it is impossible to be justified. It is impossible to be declared righteous before God. No one will be able to make that claim. No one except for Jesus Christ himself, right? Um, and then from verses 21 to 26, this is really the heart of justification. This is really the heart of his argument here. Um, I'll, I'll go through it rather be briefly, but this, this could turn into a sermon just by itself. But take a look at verse 21. Paul, Paul says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he's saying that until now, we only had the righteousness of God manifest to, to us through the law. The righteousness of God was revealed by the law, by the Mosaic law. But now, apart from the law, verse 21, he's saying that we have the righteousness of God being manifested in another way. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, that is a reminder to us that no one meets his standard. All of us fall short. But verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Now, what is a propitiation? Propitiation just means that that he was the atonement. He's the one that paid the penalty for our sins. He was displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. This is talking about God the Father's righteousness. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And then verse 26 For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness also at the present time, so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, what's all that to say? God is known by his many attributes. We know him by many attributes. One, that he is holy. We know him to be perfectly just. We know him to be perfectly righteous, right? We know him to be good. We know him to be omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. Omniscient means he knows everything. I mean, there's a lot of attributes that we know God by. Uh, We do know God to be just. What does it mean that God is just? Fair. 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 So when we think of um, just, we we think of, once again, the court system, right? That's where justice is served, is it not? Right? So if someone has committed a crime, we expect that in the court of law, that's where they're going to be sentenced, um, a fair sentence. And and if a judge does not hand out a fair sentence, then we might start to accuse the judge of being an unjust judge, right? Someone that lets a criminal off too easily or someone who uh, finds um, someone who's innocent to actually be guilty. We would say that that's corrupt, that that there's something wrong with our justice uh, system. So what we have here, when we take a look at justification by faith, Um, And it says that uh, in verse 25 that this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, this is verse 25, this is to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, what is that talking about? He passed over the sins previously committed. Well, prior to Jesus Christ, we have an Old Testament full of saints, right? Abraham was counted as righteous, David is righteous. Moses is righteous. We have a whole bunch of saints of God that are counted as righteous. 
All right, so in other words, God has declared them to be innocent. But on what basis? Because they, just like us, fall short. They fell short of the glory of God, right? All of them fell short. Certainly, you look at the life of David. You, you know that there were times in his life where he committed some pretty heinous sins, right? Yeah. So certainly, they all fell short of the glory of God. But the question is this. Without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, how could God say that he is just while pronouncing innocent people who are guilty, right? If everyone's a sinner, then everyone is deserving of what? death yeah in fact um romans uh, 3 23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god look at romans 6 23 reads for the wages of sin is what yeah. death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord so going back to chapter 3 that section that we were just in What this is saying in verse 25, that he did, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. This is to say that God had counted people who were righteous who were not really righteous. He had declared righteous people who were actually sinners just like you and me. He forgave them, but he can't just, but if a judge just simply forgives, we don't consider that judge to be just, do we? He forgave him on good basis because he forgave them based upon the price that Jesus Christ would end up paying on the cross. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he didn't simply just die for us as Christians. He died for all the saints of the Old Testament who had faith in God. So they were counted righteous. Okay, they were, they were, they were declared righteous by God in the Old Testament, but they were declared righteous not on the basis of what they've done, but on the basis of what his son would do in the future. Their faith, that's right. They're, they're declared righteous based upon their faith. That's why I went to Genesis 15, 6. says, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it is based upon faith. But what we're seeing here is that this is a demonstration. So going back to verse um, 25, God displayed publicly Jesus Christ as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And why? This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So in other words, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that was a validation. That was a validation that God was still just because the penalty that was due all those Old Testament saints was paid for at the cross by Jesus Christ. So now there can no longer be an accusation against Jesus Christ that he is unjust, Right, that, that he, is, he is allowing the guilty to go free or that he is condemning those who are innocent. No, he is paying out the punishment for those sins, even of Old Testament saints, but he's paying out those, um, those, those sins upon his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, but then also the second purpose, verse uh, 26, for the demonstration. So there, there's really two purposes. Verse 25 was really to demonstrate his righteousness for all the Old Testament saints, everyone who came before Jesus Christ who had faith in God. And then verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he is not only, this was not only to demonstrate his righteousness for those in the past, but also for those in the present time who have put their faith into Jesus Christ. And God then proves himself to be both the just and the justifier. What does that mean? He is both just. That means he is perfect. He is perfectly fair 
in everything that he does, but he is also the justifier, meaning that he is, he is not only perfect, but he's also the one that declares the one who has faith as righteous. All right, so this is the heart of justification right here. And I went through it really fast. Uh, I mean, this would be a full hour of preaching if we were to really kind of dive into it. But those are kind of the highlights um, of that passage. I mean, it's worth really soaking your mind into and, and really kind of delving into and, and, and learning more and more. But if we continue on, verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law but of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain, verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So basically, this whole argument, going back to verse 21, I mean, Paul is saying that the righteousness of God has been manifested in two ways. One is through the law, and the law does nothing but condemn us. And then the second is through Jesus Christ. So faith in Jesus Christ leads to our pardon before God, to, to being forgiven of sins, to be declared as righteous. And we can continue on um, just to look at a few more verses in Romans. Go to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 16. Paul writes this. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. So he's really contrasting Adam and Jesus Christ. Um, in fact, if we go back to, let, let's start in verse 12 so we kind of have a little bit of a context. Verse 12, um, Paul says this, Therefore, just as one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him to come. So he's talking about Adam, how Adam brought sin into the world, right? Um, and then verse 15, he says, but the free gift, and the free gift comes from Jesus Christ, but the free gift is not like the transgression. What is that transgression? He's talking about the transgression of Adam. He's talking about that original sin. The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Um, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. And this is to say when it says the free gift arose from many transgressions, the idea is that many transgressions were paid for at the cross by Jesus Christ and gave us justification for those who would have faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so we see more of these verses um, on condemnation and justification. And turn to, uh, turn to chapter 8. So stay in Romans. I tell you, Romans is just full of these um, statements about righteousness and justification. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. Romans chapter 8, and actually let's, we'll start in verse 31. Uh, these are just marvelous statements. Um, in fact, let's start in verse 28. I mean, I, 
this whole chapter is just, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, verse 28, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So we see all these events in salvation, and justification is right there. And then verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? So in other words, if God was, really, was willing to sacrifice his own son for you, how much more willing is God willing to just give you good things, right? I mean, he sacrificed his son for you, and that's the greatest sacrifice he could have made. And then verse um, 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So we have two fundamental questions in verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So God is the one that declares you righteous. No one has the power to bring a charge against you. And who will be the one who condemn in verse 34? Christ Jesus died for you. No one has the power to condemn you. Um, so we have these statements, you know, Paul constantly contrasting um, justification and, and condemnation um, and, and this idea that we are completely safe. In fact, the very first verse of this chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, therefore now there is no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been justified by faith that can never be taken away. No one can bring a charge against you. There is absolutely no condemnation. And it's not on the basis of our works. That was made clear throughout the book of Romans. That's, it was Romans that Martin Luther was converted. Martin Luther used to be um, a Roman Catholic monk. And, and as he was reading through the book of Romans, he, he got to understanding really what justification by faith meant. And it was just a light bulb moment for him. Um, and, and really, the, the, the early church fathers, I would argue that the early church fathers believed the same. But over time, they veered off the path and the Roman Catholic Church um, really went off course. Um, in fact, my um, historical theology teacher said that as of, I think, the 1100s, I want to say, um, you could have read the statement of faith from the Roman Catholic Church and still have agreed with it and said, okay, this, this church is okay. I'm talking about the statement of faith. I'm not talking about their practice, but really their statement of faith, what they claimed to have believed up to the 1100s, it was still within the boundaries of orthodoxy. So, so really what happened in the 1500s was not, you know, some people uh, accuse the Reformation of starting a new denomination 1500 years after Christ. Um, no, we believe the same thing that the apostles and the early church believed all the way up until the point when the Roman Catholic Church kind of took it sideways. You know, and it was, yeah. I have a question about um, Romans 5, um, verse 13, where yeah. it says, until the law, sin is in the world. Yeah. Sin is not imputed where there is no law. I, I don't understand that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, that's, um, this, this is a very um, pretty deep passage as well. So the law is what condemns us, right? We know that. Right. The law is what condemns us. But what Paul makes the point of, 
There was no law between Adam and Moses. We know that because the law started with Moses. And yet his next statement in uh, verse, um, we're going to chapter 5, right? Chapter 5, his next statement in chapter 5, verse uh, 13. Um, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. So Paul is making the point that the law was there in order to show us our sin. Um, and yet the, the law didn't exist until Moses. And yet going back to from Adam to Moses, we know death was in the world. And why was death in the world? Because of sin. So we saw the penalty of sin all the way back from Adam. He's just saying that God brought the law in order to make known to us our sin. Yeah, that's um, this becomes a more complicated discussion of what Paul means by yeah, that. And you may not yeah, want to go into yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like let's let's take for example the Great Flood, right? Um, in Genesis, um, I think uh, five and six, uh, Genesis six. That's when God looks at the world and says, "Every thought, every deed is evil continuously." Right. So obviously there there's evil there, um, but God had never um, firmly defined a standard of law. Now there was still sin. Um, it's just that you couldn't you couldn't define sin according to a known law that was made known to man, but um, but evil was there, death was there, death was the proof of their sinful nature. What's the meaning of the word imputed? So imputed, I tell you what, let me let me look into that some more. I think, right. you know, I think ultimately it actually points to original yeah, sin. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, and 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 let me let me tell you why I'm um. I'm being hesitant to go too deep into this. Um, there are thousands of pages written just on those few verses. Um, and so I, I, I will, yes, these from verses 12 to uh, 12 to 16, um, there, there are thesis just written just on those verses. And it's, it gets very deep. It gets very deep. This, this is the, the book of Romans um, goes into the greatest depth in terms of um, gospel theology and, and really getting into the technical details. Um, so sin is not imputed. And, and I would say that what he's saying is that it's, it's the sin as defined by the law is not imputed. But there are still sinners. And the fact that death, um, death reigned from Adam to Moses is proof that sin was in the world, even though the sin as defined by the law could not be imputed to them. So I think I would say that sin not being imputed, it's, it's the same idea of imputed that we have today. It's just that without a law, you can't define exactly what sin is. But God, obviously, you know, he can see evil. You know, there's, you know, Cain murdering Abel and uh, the Tower of Babel, people disobeying God. I mean, cer- certainly you see people disobeying God and doing what is wrong. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I agree. I, yeah. I, I just yeah. I've never understood yeah, I, I would say that that is the sin as revealed specifically by the law. Yeah. But I'll, I'll, I'll look into it more and see if I can come up with a better explanation than that. Any other questions? Yeah, I mean, regardless of how you look at that, it's um, when you follow the argument, clearly um, death had reigned from the very beginning as a result of the original sin. Um, the law just helped make known um, what... Uh, what, what had been obvious or what had been going on from the beginning. In fact, if you go to Romans chapter 7, we won't read through this, but Romans chapter 7, Paul says that um, the law revealed his sin to him. And the more that he understood, that the more he wanted to um, break that law. Um, verse 9, in fact, chapter 7, verse 9, just real quick, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. 
and this commandment which was to result to life proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Um, so really, he, he talks about the role of the law in revealing his sin um, to him. You know, so that's, uh, and, and really, that's the law. That's the law that, that goes back to the whole argument that the law was a manifestation of the righteousness of God. This is the standards of God's righteousness. It's just like in any society that we live in. If we're brought before a judge and we don't know what crime we've committed, that's the first, crime, that's the first question we're going to ask. What crime did I commit? You know, what, what, what did I do wrong? You guys don't even have, you know, and if there's no written laws, there's nothing that they can really hold you against. Um, in this case, God's righteousness was not revealed until that Mosaic law. But we saw disobedience, we saw rebellion, we saw people killing one another all the way up until that point. Well, we can go back to chapter one that says that uh, nature itself shows that there is um, a law in nature. Yeah, that's chapter two, written in, in the heart. Yeah, yeah, chapter two, yeah. Yeah, the, the, there's the law of God written in the heart of man. So, yeah, I, I would say even before the Mosaic law, there there is that law written in people's heart, really a conscience, right? And, and um, you know, when you look at Adam and Eve, when Adam sinned against God, he knew he sinned against God, right? I mean, because God shows up, and what does Adam do? Yeah, he hides. He, he knows he sinned. Right. And then when Cain murdered Abel and God confronted him, he didn't, he didn't admit it. Right? He know he did wrong. You know, so we, we see the conscience at work from the very beginning. It's just that we didn't have a discreet law um, given to people um, until the, the, the time of Moses. And then uh, turn to uh, chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, uh, Paul writes this, For not knowing about God's righteousness, and, and he's talking about the Jews here, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, did they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So in describing what went wrong with Israel in the Old Testament, he's basically saying that they tried to establish their own kind of righteousness. And what's interesting is that Paul actually lived that. Right. I mean, prior to his conversion, he he saw that played out in his own life, you know, trying to seek their own righteousness um, until he came to a knowledge of, of Jesus Christ and rec recognized that it was only by faith. Um, and, you, you know, you got to love God's sovereignty in all this, because we're talking about Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he was Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he was a Pharisee of the highest order. He was a rising superstar in their ranks. You know, so this was um, this was a man who was highly um, respected within the Jewish order before he was saved. And now this is the guy who's making the strongest argument for justification by faith alone. This is the guy who is defending the Gentiles most. This is the guy who is writing in the book of Ephesians that you who were once uncircumcised have been brought near to God. I mean, the greatest defender of the Gentiles coming to faith just by faith and not by any works of the law comes from the guy who was the greatest legalist himself. I mean, that's. That's just the sovereign goodness of God, you know, choosing a man like Paul to make those kinds of defenses. And he was, he was uniquely gifted and knowledgeable to make these kinds of defenses because he knew the law inside and out. You know, but he did not understand justification by faith until God opened up his eyes and his heart. He, well, it's interesting that uh, Paul kept the law, but his sin was his pride in keeping the law. Yeah. Uh, but the law itself, Paul did keep, 
Yeah, he did keep the law, but then in, in Romans chapter 7, we, we see that he says, I do the things that I did not want to do, right? So, I mean, we, we, we see a little bit of both. I mean, I, externally, I think what he's saying is externally, he was, he was perfect. But internally, he knew that there was sin raging within him. But there's a debate whether Romans 7 refers to Paul uh, as a new yeah. man in Christ or yeah. uh, before he became a believer. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I actually do take the latter, latter position. Most people take the former. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would say that Paul was, um, he was perfect externally, but, um, but I mean, even if you look at um, earlier Romans 7, when he talks about how the role of the law, just basically the law killed him um, by revealing sin to him. Um, I, I think that Paul would say that internally he knew that he was sinful, but externally he, he, was, uh, he was perfect. And that's really what the Pharisees, you know, that's what they did. It was external perfection, right? Whitewashed tombs, right? Perfect on the outside, but inside full of dead men's uh, bones. Um, and, and really the, the ultimate proof of, um, of their hypocrisy was their rejection of the Messiah. They knew the law better than anyone. They were in the best position to be able to say that that Messiah is exactly fulfilling the prophecies of the, that comes from the scriptures that we know better than anyone else. But rather than say that's the Messiah, what did they do? He does that work by the power of Satan. You know, and they, they, sent, him, they sent him to death. They, they even, um, you know, they falsely testified against him. They, you know, falsely convicted him. They, they broke their own law in order to send Jesus to the cross. You know, I mean, it was, it was Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the one that's standing up for Jesus saying, wait a second, doesn't our law, you know, require that we give him a fair trial? And then he gets, he gets put down for even making that kind of suggestion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, this, is, um, this is the way that Pharisees um, have, have operated. Um, but, yeah, Romans does a, a great job of really just talking about uh, the, the, the righteousness of God and explaining justification. I'll take you to one more uh, verse, and then we'll close this out. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Because I talked about this idea of double imputation. Um, justification does not change you. Okay, justification is just a legal declaration. So let me, I'll just... Re- 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So just as a reminder, justification does not change you internally. It is just a legal declaration. But it's a legal declaration that can only be true. Okay, let me say, let me say this very slowly. It is a legal declaration that can only be true if God somehow gives you the righteousness of Christ. All right, so in other words, for God to pronounce you as righteous is, can only be just if indeed you were given righteousness. And so that's why we get to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, when it says this. It says, he made him, this is talking about God the Father made God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So right there we see that Jesus Christ took on our sin at the cross. Okay, on our behalf he took on sin. And here's the purpose, so that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. So when Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died, there was two things he actually accomplished with his work at the cross. One, he paid for your sins. But here's the thing. If all he did was pay for your sins, what, you, what you're back at is a neutral position. You haven't sinned, but you, neither have you proven yourself righteous. Right? So he's really just taken away your transgressions against God. But what he did is that he gave you the righteousness of Christ. 
So when Jesus Christ lived his perfect life, he lived his life perfectly according to the law. He was the perfect fulfillment of the law. We talked a little bit about that in this morning's message, that um, he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And so in fulfilling the law, he became the perfect embodiment of the law. But in that transaction, we, in putting our faith into Jesus Christ, we not only, we, we not only have the promise that our sins have been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, but we also have the promise that when we stand before God, God does not see us, uh, our works. He rather sees the works of Jesus Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Um, so that's that's the work of double imputation. That is what actually makes us righteous. And that is what allows God to make a declaration that you are righteous and that that declaration is a just declaration on the basis of the work of his son. And I know that's this is a this is a multifaceted topic. This gets there's a lot of layers here. So I, I realize that, you know, we went through a lot of those verses quickly and uh, and, and this is one of these um, topics that um, you can spend a lot of time just kind of swimming through. I mean, that's, this is what Martin Luther did. I mean, he was reading through the book of Romans over and over again. And, um, and it took him a while to finally, for it to finally dawn on him that what he had been doing to try to earn God's favor. And, you know, he would constantly go to confession. He was known to go to confession multiple times a, times a day. And, um, and, and, and the guy that um, he would confess to, his name was actually Staupitz, Staupitz. And so my, my historical theology teacher would say, so you can, remember the, you can remember his name by just imagining him telling Martin Luther to stop it, stop it, <laughs> constantly confessing um, his sins. But Martin Luther saw this and realized that, yeah, it's not, it's not works, it's, it's faith alone. So um, any questions or comments at this time? All right, big topic. All right, let me go ahead and close out in prayer.